0: Everybody and Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Jason Mokhtarian, who teaches at Indiana University. Here to talk about his new book, Rabbis, Sorcerers, Kings, and Priests, The Culture of the Talmud in Ancient Iran, published in 2015 by the University of California Press. Jason, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. Well, we're glad to have you. So maybe we can start with this, um, Jason. What is the Talmud? And in particular, what is the Bavli version?
1: Sure. The Talmud, actually, there's two Talmuds. Uh, there's one called the Jerusalem Talmud and another called the Babylonian Talmud. Let me start with the Babylonian Talmud, because that's what my book is about. The Babylonian Talmud is a vast compendium of laws and narratives produced by the rabbis of late antiquity, who, at the time, were living under the Persian Sasanian Empire. And the Babylonian Talmud is an extremely important work in the Jewish sacred canon, Uh, It's considered to be one of the basis of normative Judaism as it's still practiced today. And it's a vast work. Uh, There's a movement called the Daph Yomi Movement, uh, in which various Jewish communities read one page of Talmud a day, and it takes seven and a half years, just to put it into perspective. So the Talmud is really a legal work. The lion's share of the material is halakhic discourse, uh, disagreements between rabbis over Jewish law. And it is Strictly speaking, a commentary on an earlier rabbinic work called the Mishnah, which was edited in 220 CE uh, in Palestine. Uh, So at its core, it's really a work of exegesis, but there are numerous digressions in which the Talmud uh, uh, uses narrative forms as well as other genres to uh, express, for instance, didactic messages. So uh, in in a few words, the Talmud is a a vast work of, of exegesis and narrative. Uh, produced uh, from around the 3rd century of the Common Era to uh, the 6th or 7th centuries of the Common
0: Era. Right. And so the rabbis who put together this compendium of laws and narratives, they were living in Babylonia, but under the Sasanian Empire. Is that right? What what should we know about the empire?
1: Correct. Uh, The the rabbis were living in uh, the westernmost area of the Persian Sasanian Empire, which uh, was essentially the main rival to the Romans in late antiquity. And the Sasanians come on the scene uh, around 224 of the Common Era and have a uh, rule over a large amount of territory extending from uh, Mesopotamia, where the rabbis were located, all the way uh, east to, uh, to the reaches of Afghanistan and India. In some cases. Uh, so the empire was, was vast. And the rabbis were essentially in Babylonia, living uh, essentially on the border between Rome and Persia. And so they were uh, living essentially in what was uh, the capital region, near the capital city of Ctesiphon, and living in what I often describe to my undergrads as sort of the New York City of its time, right? It was an extremely cosmopolitan area in some cases, at least around in and around Ctesiphon, There was a great deal of exposure on the part of the rabbis to, for instance, Persian imperial culture. And they were surrounded by others, like uh, Syriac-speaking Christians, Manichaeans, Mandaeans, and numerous other religious groups that were also considered to be quote-unquote minorities within the Persian Empire. So so that's essentially the orientation of of my book, is to look at the rabbis within this broader Persian imperial setting.
0: And so they were living in sort of a multicultural society, right? A a lot of diverse religious groups. Um, Maybe um, set the stage for us a little. What is Zoroastrianism?
1: Zoroastrianism is an ancient Iranian religion uh, which extends all the way back to the Avestan period. The Avesta being the Zoroastrian scriptures uh, produced several millennia ago and is a really understudied work unfortunately with a complicated linguistic history And Zoroastrianism extends really up until today. There are numerous uh, Zoroastrian communities, um, I forget what the exact population is today, but uh, 100,000 or so, I believe, I could be wrong about that, but uh, really in in Iran and India and America and other places uh, around the world, so it's more of a diaspora community today. But uh, Zoroastrianism is essentially a dualistic religion emanating from uh, from Iran uh, in which there are various permutations throughout history, obviously. Uh, the time period that I'm looking at, the Sasanian period, is the time period in which the Zoroastrian uh, religion was essentially the imperial state religion of the empire. So it becomes a very important component to understanding uh, late antique Persia under which the rabbis were,
0: were being influenced. Right. So you spent a good bit of time sort of explaining your method. Um, maybe you can help us understand how have people read the Babylonian Talmud before? And what kind of approach are you advocating for?
1: Yeah, I think that, as I I put it in my book, I think that the majority of research on the Babylonian Talmud or Babli has been geared towards uh, unearthing its transmissional history, uh, its various source-critical types of data, uh, which explore, for instance, manuscript variants, and the development of halacha, in particular, uh, that's not to, of course, take away from the numerous approaches that scholars have taken towards the text, um, including agadic studies and so on and so forth. Uh, but really, this orientation that I promote in the book, which is one which opens up the Bavli to broader context, um, is, is relatively new. There's there's a whole history of studying the Bavli in context that goes back 150 years, and there's been some great accomplishments in that regard. But with a particular emphasis on the Persian context, I think that there's been uh, a real resurgence uh, in researching this component. And so essentially, the, the framework of my book is to offer um, a counterbalance to what I see as sort of the internal exegetical models that scholars have used to research, the, uh, for instance, the evolution of Talmud and Kalakha, uh, the comparison, for instance, of the Bahwi with the Hashalmi, the other Talmud. Uh, which has many similarities and, and gets transmitted into Babylonia in certain cases. Uh, so really sort of the way that we uh, talk about this in the field and the way I present it in my book is internal versus external models. Uh, I think that the majority of research on, on the Babylonian tends to be uh, internal, that's not absolutely not, not always the case. There, are, there have been great achievements by Richard Callum and Daniel Bonar and Dan Gaffney. Numerous, numerous people have studied Babylonian contextually. Uh, but really, my book, I think, where it stands on that spectrum is to offer a counterbalance to internal methods with a strong emphasis, of course, on the Persian context in particular.
0: Mm-hmm. What have been the challenges to doing this kind of external work? Uh, I imagine one of them might be languages.
1: Yeah, the languages are, of course, a barrier. Uh, <clears throat> studying the, the Talmud in context really requires a scholar to typically lo- uh, to target, I should say, um, one, one particular context over another. So in other words, uh, no no scholar can really master all of the relevant languages. It's quite difficult to do uh, Talmudic Aramaic, uh, Syriac, which is the Aramaic Christian language of the Persian Empire, uh, Mandaic, which is another Aramaic language of a religious community, uh, as well as the numerous Iranian languages. So languages are absolutely um, a barrier. Uh, that's why really we call in our field uh as much as possible to work together. So people different scholars have different configurations of linguistic capabilities. Uh, so so my, my emphasis is of course on uh Jewish Aramaic and uh Middle Persian in particular. Uh so that's that is you're right. That is in fact one of the one of the main barriers to doing research in this field is that it's very difficult to master uh numerous languages. So that that's absolutely something that uh all of us need to be working together to accomplish.
0: Right. So um, many of the references to you know, Persian elements in the Talmud are very brief. Uh, how, did you, how did you get a lot from such little material?
1: Yeah, a lot of them are brief. It, it's true. And that, of course, poses a particular interpretive problem for the way that uh, one researches knowledge of and influences by Persia on the rabbis. And one has to grapple with that only a particular data set that one can use in researching this topic, uh, it, it, at least with respect to explicit uh, references to Persia. So yeah, a lot of them are short, you're right about that. There are some lengthy ones too, which I think I call attention to in, in the book. Um, so so really what one has to do I think is to uh, take those short texts and first of all, look at them in totality. So bringing them all together I think is you actually do have a nice amount of text there that, that are about Persia. Um, and also just extending those what those texts say about Persia into larger questions that one can grapple with in the field. So, for instance, although the texts are the evidence upon which the book is essentially based, uh, these texts raise issues that one can then use other types of data to help answer. So uh, the texts are both uh, uh, evidentiary use, useful, uh, although, as you mentioned, they're quite short. So in some ways, they don't live up to the hype. Uh, but in other ways, they raise issues that one can then use other texts to help answer or use external data from the Talmud to to shed light on. So so they're both um, limiting and also uh, stimulating at the same time.
0: hmm Before we get into the the chapters themselves, uh, I wanted to ask you, you write, the rabbis' portrayals of Persia are politics of representation aimed at bolstering their social power. What what do you mean by that?
1: I think the way that the rabbis depict the Persians is really through an us-done dialectic, which the rabbis use to try to express their point of view about their status within uh, the Jewish community, as well as perhaps within the Persian Empire itself. So, in other words, the way that they use the Persians is essentially to represent themselves in a in a nice way. Uh, the rabbis are always um, promoting self-aggrandizing discourses in which they uh, try to promote their high status within the Jewish community. And one of the ways they do that is by um, either contrasting themselves themselves with with the Persians or by using, for instance, Persian language or uh, Persian motifs, Persian imperial motifs, uh, in reference to themselves, uh, which essentially expresses this idea that they're on par with the aristocracy or something of the sort. So there's there's all sorts of ways that they're using these texts as sort of a politics of representation of themselves within the Jewish community and within Persia at large. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So the first two chapters sort of deal with um, methodology or theory or your, your program for how you would like to uh, sort of integrate Talmudic studies uh, and uh, religious studies. So tell us um, in chapter two about avoiding the pitfalls of comparative inquiry. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that
1: is essentially that scholars who research the Talmud in the Iranian context need to be very careful with respect to the numerous differences between, for instance, the Talmudic corpus and, for instance, the Middle Persian corpus. And there are a a lot of differences between these two corpora that, in my opinion, scholars working in this field have ignored. For instance, the one that I discuss uh, at most length in chapter two is anachronism. And the Middle Persian sources that we really have Uh, are from the 9th and 10th centuries of the Common Era, so well into the Islamic period. And these sources are often juxtaposed with Talmudic sources, which come from an earlier time and a different geographical So this uh, anachronism, this difference in time and place between these sources has been bridged in various ways by scholars, but in my opinion, uh, hasn't been done sufficiently. enough. Uh, A lot of people, for instance, date the Middle Persian sources from the 9th and tenth centuries to to late antiquity or the Sasanian period itself. I, I'm not convinced that that is the best way to understand these texts. Or in any case, in any case, I think that it, that that claim, which is really all over Sasanian studies or Middle Persian studies, hasn't been fully corroborated. So so that's one of the pitfalls that I, I look at in chapter two. Is essentially how these two porpora. Um, are, are not similar, right We need to pay attention to both similarities and differences uh, lest we fall into the positivistic traps of parallelomania or uh, just really just glossing over a lot of these differences that are uh, are are pertinent for a study of this sort. so that's one of it's one of the uh, pitfalls that I allude to and and my um my research in this vein it really does draw from a history of comparative religion, Uh, this is something that's been discussed by Jonathan Z. Smith and and many other people. Uh, So I'm really drawing from, I think, a historiographical tradition, which uh, emphasizes the idea that uh, scholars need to pay close attention to differences as much as similarities. Mm -hmm.
0: Chapter three is called uh, Rabbinic Portrayals of Persians as Others. Um, Tell us, you know, in what kind of passages do we find descriptions of Persians and what are Persian loan words?
1: Most of the Talmudic descriptions of Persians tend to take place in the context of, for instance, exegesis of biblical passages about the Persian Achaemenids, or uh, descriptions of Persian civilization in the realm of everyday life, such as food and clothes or things of that nature. Uh, of course, most of the de- most of the depictions of Persians relate to the Persian Empire itself. Uh, I think most of them are actually imperial uh, descriptions. Uh, Persian loanwords are quite important. They are, in fact, the in my opinion, really the only explicit data outside of the representations of Persians that we have of Iranian penetration uh, into the Babli itself. So there are probably between. 200 to 300 Iranian loanwords that crop up in various Talmudic passages, and essentially what these are are uh, frozen Iranian words that entered into the Jewish Babylonian Aramaic lexicon. Not unlike, for instance, in English, the French word order or "bon appétit." Uh, we use these words in our everyday language um, with some with some consciousness that they come from a different language, but they've entered into our English discourse in a way that we use them readily. So the rabbis essentially used several hundred of these loan words uh in Babylonian Talmud. And I discuss this at some length in the book because I think it's a really important issue in understanding uh really the, the, the most explicit data the data that we have are these loan words. And I, I think a lot more research needs to be done done with them. Uh so so this uh this project is actually something that I think extends beyond the book and, and needs to be explored in
0: more detail. hmm Without getting too, you know, uh, inside baseball, um, can you tell us a little bit about your intermediary position between Neusner and Elman? What what, what, what are sort of the poles and where do you put yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, I think that there's been a, a major revolution in the field of Irano Talmudica, uh, largely thanks to Jakob Elman. Uh, Jakob Elman is a t- uh, Talmudist working today, uh, employed at Yeshiva University who, uh, you know, about 15 years ago, let's say, or 10 years ago, began to draw a great deal of attention to the field and really opened up the floodgates to researching uh, the Talmud in the Iranian context. And he, he deserves a lot of credit for bringing attention to the field. And he's really the one responsible in many ways uh, for the current status of the field. Uh, Elman has been uh, critiqued, and, and I critique him a little bit in the book, uh, for being a bit too positivistic. Uh, in his analyses and comparisons of primary texts, uh, so I, I um, my, my position, my position vis-a-vis Elman is, I think that I would like to maybe just take a take a deep breath and to look a, a little bit more at some of the problems that we have in, in the comparison. Um, and Elman is is really, in many ways, uh, transforming what was for many decades the the basic idea that Jacob Neusner. Uh, endorsed, which was that there really is, in fact, very little Iranian influence on the Bosni. This is something he says in several publications uh, in the 1960s and 70s, and, and I think really uh, even beyond that. And so Neusner, for many decades, really left a, a dark cloud of the field. I think a lot of people never really went in this direction because of what he said. So this idea that we have um, a complete reversal of the historiographical trend from uh, Jacob Neusner to Jakob Elman is something that I thought was was a really interesting way for me to locate myself. And so I think I think I put myself essentially between Neusner and Elman. I, I'm much closer to Jakob Elman in terms of my claims than I am Jacob Neusner. I think Neusner gets a lot of things wrong. Uh, so, so that's absolutely true. But I, I, I do think that um, with respect to Elman's more positivistic claims, I, I would like to just uh, distinguish myself a little bit from him by by being uh, what I hope is slightly more careful in terms of how one undertakes comparison using uh, especially middle Persian sources.
0: Chapter 4 is called Rabbis and Sasanian Kings in Dialogue. Um, can you tell us uh, briefly about the Sage Shapur dialogues and some of the unusual places where we, where we find um, the king mentioned?
1: Sure. The images of the Sasanian kings in the Babylonian Talmud uh are really of just a few of the Persian kings. We don't unfortunately have many depictions of uh the Persian monarchs specifically or by name, I should say. Uh but as you mentioned, Shapur, uh Shmuel and Shapur are actually uh two of the more uh interactive figures that we find uh, interacting with one another, I should say. And so we get all of these depictions of King Shapur in the Babylonian Talmud. And uh there are of various sorts. Uh, most of them are, I would say, I should say some of them are fairly positive images of Shapur. Uh, they tend to be used in a way that uh, expresses Shapur's authority over particular matters. Um, uh, we we also get various images of a different king um, named Ardabon in both the Jerusalem and, and Babylonian Talmud, and he's used in a similar way. I think that these images are, are not really to be located within specific historical events. I don't think that these rabbis necessarily interacted with these Persian kings in any capacity. Um, perhaps there was, there was some overlap between uh, key figures that we find in the Talmud or in the Exilarchal court, for instance, uh, vis-a-vis the, the Sasanian monarchy. I really think that instead of seeing these texts as uh, artifacts of historical encounters between rabbis and kings, then, in fact, they're really just used to express ideas of authority. And the rabbis are using these passages about Shapur to engage questions of authority, or, or in particular rabbinic authority, uh, as it might pertain to uh, imperial authority. Uh, Shapur the First, for various reasons, is a, is a great symbol for this idea of early Sasanian authority, in particular from the 3rd century.
0: So they're, they're sort
1: of scattered about the Talmud, these images of the Persian kings, Uh, But a book like this wouldn't have been complete without me taking a closer look at some of those portrayals.
0: Mm -hmm. And then in Chapter 5, you look at the Zoroastrian priests. Um, Tell us what's going on there.
1: Chapter 5 explores the relationship between the rabbinic movement and the Zoroastrian priesthood broadly defined. The Zoroastrian priests functioned in numerous important capacities, both on the imperial and religious level. Uh, in the Sasanian Empire, they were, for instance, uh, administrators of the legal system and the court system. They were also uh, individuals who oversaw Zoroastrian rituals. Uh, they were also uh, scholar priests who studied the Avesta and wrote commentaries on the Avesta. So basically, what I do in this chapter is compare and contrast the roles of the rabbis in Jewish society with the roles of the Zoroastrian priests in Sassanian uh, society. And the the place that I target specifically are courts of law and judicial settings. And what I find is that there are numerous uh, similarities and differences between the way that they function as judges in their respective societies. And this these similarities and differences open up a line of inquiry, which explores the... Uh, the extent to which the rabbis actually had judicial authority over matters in Jewish society. So in other words, to what extent did the Sasanian uh, imperial judicial structure impose upon the Jews uh, as opposed to allowing the rabbis to have uh, some judicial authority over internal uh, communal matters? So that that really is sort of the overarching concern of, of the chapter is that type of question about rabbinic judicial authority. Uh, and I used sort of the comparison and contrast uh, method between the rabbis in Jewish society versus the Zoroastrian priests in Persian society to uh, set up that type of inquiry.
0: Right. And I was surprised to see um, that, you know, sort of different courts of law were used at different times, right?
1: Yeah, that's true. There's We're talking about uh, four centuries plus. So... There's absolutely going to be uh, transformations of the various institutions uh, from, for instance, the early third to the sixth centuries, And I think that these trends are, are difficult to discern, but one does get the sense that there is a greater uh, an increase in instit- institutionalization uh, on both sides. I think that by the sixth century, the Sasanian Empire had a much more uh, organized and um, well established legal system in place uh, as opposed to in the in the third century and I think that in some ways that that's sort of a logical progression for uh, such a powerful empire uh, although one could see uh, of course the, the reverse taking place in certain instances too and for the rabbis as well you, you do get greater institutionalization there there have been studies which show that the rabbinic academies started out as small disciple circles and eventually worked their way uh, through the early Gaonic period, into full-blown academies. And these were essentially the locales where uh, uh, Jewish courts of law uh, were located. So um, I I think that there are absolutely certain trends that one can find over the course of late antiquity uh, with respect to the ways that these institutions were organized and, as a result, the way that they imposed upon them.
0: And then finally, chapter six um, is about rabbis and sorcerers. Um, you, you have to tell us about these bowls.
1: Yeah, the, the Aramaic magical bowls are a vast corpus uh, of incantation texts that were produced by, uh, mostly by Jews, but also by other groups uh, in the late Sasanian and perhaps early Islamic periods. And we have, uh, I forget how many bowls now, hundreds and hundreds of bowls, uh, including ones that are for the first time uh, being published right now, uh, that are located in in museums all around the world. And these are fascinating incantation texts for a variety of reasons. The, The main reason that I'm interested in them is because they show a different picture of the type of religion that was being practiced on the ground in Mesopotamia. And what that means is that although these bowls were largely produced by Jewish sorcerers, these Jewish sorcerers were producing bowls for clients of other religions and were drawing from a common stock of uh, of, of religion that one can maybe call popular religion. So the Jewish sorcerers draw from pagan deities. They mention uh, all sorts of themes that are common in other religions. And they're also writing these incantations to ward off demons and disease for uh, Iranian name, presumably Zoroastrians, as well as some Christians, too. So there's a real uh, mixture and syncretism involved in these bowls, which I think in many ways uh, problematize the picture of Judaism that the Talmud represents. So they're really the only other data that we have of Judaism from late antique Persia. And that fact alone, they're they're fascinating.
0: Uh, and then finally, I want to ask you, um, you know, if you have anything, how, how has your research uh, impacted the way you see um, Iran today? I'm, I'm sure you um, probably get questions about this, but, but does the study of this multicultural society where uh, Jews and Persians, you know, seem to get along well and had syncretistic, you know, religions uh, impact anything in today's world?
1: You know that's a great question, and it's something that I I think about. I tend not to move in that direction in in my own research, at least, uh, to avoid uh, sort of these broad generalizations about what we can learn from the past and how that relates to the present. But there but there is of course something to be said about this. And um, I I think I think generally speaking, what I take away from it is the the overlap between Jewish and Iranian history needs to be acknowledged. And uh, there's absolutely the most formative time periods in Jewish history, in particular the Achaemenid and Sasanian periods, to use the the Persian historical nomenclature, are very formative time periods in Jewish history, and need need to be acknowledged as such. So, I think what I take away from from that that question, or the way I would answer that question that you pose, is uh, by by saying that that absolutely it's, it's true that Iranian civilization has had a transformative impact on uh, the, the formulation of Judaism, and in this case, the formulation of Talmudic Judaism, which in many ways uh, is the foundation for the way that normative Jewish behavior uh, is thought about today. So uh, we, we need to consider the Iranian aspects of, of Judaism that, that began really in the biblical period and extend through late antiquity. And I think that that, that alone is something to Take away uh, for people living in Iran today that, that their civilization had a great impact on Judaism, and and vice versa. I think Judaism had a great role to play in uh, the transformations that take place in Iran. Uh, one final point on that, which is that I think the Talmud is actually a great resource for scholars interested in Persian history. And I think that that's one of the moves that scholars need to think harder about: is the way in which Jewish data can be used to study other, uh, for instance, uh, Iranian, in this case, Iranian context. So I think that there's various ways that one can play with this idea that uh, Iranian and Jewish civilizations uh, overlap throughout history and that there's something to be understood about um, our current situations today. Uh, based on that, although I, I again I, I tend to resist sort of thinking in this way, um, but but it's a fair question and, and it, it is indeed something that I get asked about a lot. So you're you're, you're asking a great question.
0: Right. Well, Jason, we've taken up a lot of your time. So any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and uh, what are you working on next?
1: Uh, first of all, thank you for for this opportunity to to talk. Um, uh, what I'm working on next is actually an extension of the final chapter of the book. In many ways, it's sort of a sequel. I'm working on the Aramaic magical bulls and, uh, in particular, the, the recent bowls that were just published. Uh, there's been very few synthetic studies, uh, of the bulls. And so I think I'm going to uh, write a book on that subject next. Uh, but, but after that, I really am interested in, uh, researching more broadly the Jews of, of Persia throughout different time periods. Uh, so, so those, those are really sort of the, the next things on, on the horizon for me.
0: Those sound like great projects. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Rabbis, Sorcerers, Kings, and Priests, The Culture of the Talmud in Ancient Iran, published in 2015 by the University of California Press. The author is Jason Mokhtarian. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.